Well, Merry Christmas. Welcome to New City Baptist Church. My name is Alex Bloomfield. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you have decided to join us here today, uh, particularly given the uncertainty of the moment. I'll have more to say by way of welcome here in a moment, uh, but right now I'll ask that you please stand, and let's begin today's service by singing two carols that essentially function as Christmas calls to worship. O come all ye faithful, and angels we have heard on high. Sovereign God, glorify your name in our worship this morning. Cause us to gaze anew upon Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, a gift of love and righteousness, yet scorned by the ones he came to save. Lord, such is your great mercy that even now you still extend salvation to rebels. Magnify that good news this morning, the good news of a light dawning upon a dark world. For there was no light within it. We pray this in his great name. Amen. I'd like to welcome you once again this morning to New City Baptist Church, our Christmas corporate worship service. If you're joining us for the first time today, we are very glad that you're here. Uh, Let me say to you that you are welcome today, uh, no matter your race, your gender, your age, your sexual orientation, your social status, or anything you have believed or done up to this point in your life. Why is that? Because at the very heart of Christmas, indeed at the very heart of the Bible, is the famous message of the angels on that first Christmas. Good news that will bring great joy to who? To all people. No qualifiers, no exceptions. Where many have gone wrong, though, is deciphering exactly what that good news is. What we often hear today is a focus upon symptoms of the good news. What we hope to do today over the next 80 minutes or so is get to the heart of the matter to discover why the angels said what they said. And to do that, we must go to God's revealed word, the Bible. Friends, the Bible is not a random collection of ancient writings. It tells one story, one divinely inspired and culture transcending story from Genesis to Revelation. Its climax is the incarnation, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. And the first stop we must make if we're to rightly understand what is happening at Bethlehem is to go to the opening three chapters of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. Most of you probably know something about the Bible's creation account. The eternal God, he creates the universe in all of its splendor, but his chief work in it is mankind. He makes us in his image. We are to reflect God in some way as his prime ministers, you could say, over creation. But our ancestors, they fail at this first hurdle. A creature in the form of a serpent, an angelic being who had likely already rebelled against God, he encourages Adam and Eve to defy God. And they give in. They attempt to de-God God in disobeying his only prohibition. The first sin is a revolution that has been repeated over and over ever since. It's still being repeated outside these doors. A human attempting to rise as a creature to the level of creator. The effect of sin is both spiritual and physical. Humans can no longer be in the unfiltered presence of God. So God expels us from the garden. 
Genesis chapter 3 is a sad, sad text. All creation is impacted by this fall of man, and as God's own image bearers, we bear the worst of it. God reveals sin's penalty is a life of suffering and ultimately death. But there is a sparkle of hope in the midst of that dark scene. In his curse against the serpent, God promises that a future ancestor of the first woman would one day destroy him. This is Genesis 3.15. It says this, And I, that's God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, that's the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Friends, the Bible later reveals that Jesus is this long-promised offspring of Eve. As the Apostle John puts it, he was born to destroy the works of the devil, born to crush the serpent and all that he represents. And it is here that we land at the center of the good news of Christmas. Charles Wesley puts it in a carol we'll sing later this morning. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature, now restore. The carol writers knew this so well. Though many Christians have forgotten this central message of Christmas today, the carol writer said Jesus came to save us all from Satan's power. God rest you, Mary Gentleman, reminds us of that. Or as Isaac Watts writes in Joy to the World, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let's sing those truths together. You can stand again. Well, the promise of Genesis 3.15 does not stand alone in Scripture as the only text to find its fulfillment in Christ. In fact, the whole storyline of the Old Testament marches toward the arrival of Eve's promised seed. After Genesis 3, the number of people increase, and so sin increases as well. It gets so bad that God wipes out everyone in a devastating flood, except for Noah and his family. But immediately after the waters recede... That spiral to sin resumes again. This time, God intervenes in a different way by choosing a God-fearing man named Abram, whom he later renames Abraham. God promises to make him into a great nation and that his seed would one day bless all the nations. It's essentially a renewal of Genesis 3.15. God eventually makes a full-blown covenant with the descendants of Abraham after bringing them out of slavery in Egypt These rules, collectively known, you've probably heard this as the law, allow his specially chosen people to approach him safely, despite their sin. It's a taste of Eden, but it's not quite the same. God's presence was still heavily veiled. Sacrifices needed to be repeated over and over. And God's people always failed in some way to hold up their stipulations. After God establishes his people in a permanent location, his people ask for a king. God obliges that somewhat silly request. After all, he is their king. And eventually he calls a man named David to lead the people. David receives a special promise too in 2 Samuel 7. God says to him, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, 
You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Yes, we are going to read a genealogy in our Christmas service. I know that's exactly what you were all expecting. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew's first audience reading that verse would have instantly recalled the history that I just recounted to you and more. Matthew's making a profound statement here. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, his mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Pause there for a moment. What Matthew is doing in this genealogy is masterful literary work. Skip to verse 17 for a second. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, this is not chronological. His first audience would have known this. Matthew intentionally skips over some generations to make a theological point. Matthew's emphasis on 14 is an example of what's called gematria. It's the practice of assigning a numerical value to a name. In Hebrew, David consists of three letters and has a numeric value of 14. Matthew wants to drive home to his Jewish readers that Jesus is the king they've been looking for. He is the long-promised son of David. Pick it back up with me at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, those were all kings, kings of Israel or Judah. About half of them were brutal tyrants. The promise to David was not ultimately fulfilled in any of them, evidenced by the fact that their kingdom was taken away either by death or by exile. The line of David is humbled by the exile, yet preserved, as Matthew goes on. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shaltiel, Shaltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud, Abahud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now, those years recounted in that last section, the years after the exile, They were hard times for God-fearing Jews. Israel was little more than a vassal state of powerful empires during this time period. To many, it seemed God had long forgotten his promises to David and to Abraham. 
And to make matters worse, for about 400 years leading up to Jesus' death, there was a period of prophetic silence. There were no biblical books written from about 450 BC to the first century. This genealogy, the way it's been placed in our Bibles today, is meant to emphatically break that silence. Matthew is saying, look, here is the Messiah that all the prophets foretold. The one Isaiah said would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, but yet also a suffering servant, pierced for the transgressions of his people. Here is the one who Micah said will be born in lowly Bethlehem, yet his greatness would reach to the ends of the earth. This is him. By the time Matthew is writing this, he knows this arrival was not what the Jews expected. Many missed him because they were blind to God's word through the prophets. But the good news was that was okay. This descendant of David did not give up the throne upon his death. This son of David is on the throne for good. As verse in one of our next carols declares, O come, thou key of David, come. Open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Friends, Jesus is now sitting on the throne, a throne much more powerful than any that could ever be constructed in Jerusalem. The throne at the right hand of his father. Please stand and let's sing together. Let's pray. O Lord, we praise you now in the words of your servant, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of Israel, because you have visited and redeemed your people. We praise you, the one who sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of your servant, David, just as promised by the prophets. Now we can be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. We praise you because you have remembered your covenants with Noah, Abraham, Israel, and David. We praise you, Lord, because you have rescued us from our ultimate enemy, so we can now serve you without fear for as long as you lend us life. We praise you because in your tender mercy this morning, light from heaven has broken upon us to give light to those who sit under the shadow of death and to guide us into the path of peace. We ask that you would attend the preaching of your word in a few minutes and quiet our hearts as we reflect now in song on the night when glory streamed from heaven afar and the era of redeeming grace dawned. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Friends, what's the true meaning of the Christmas season? Now, I can see by your faces that some of you are feeling pretty clever right now. Uh, But just wait. According to my Wikipedia research, the true meaning of Christmas, quote-unquote, that has a very long history. It first appeared in the mid-19th century, often with vaguely religious overtones. Uh, But overt religious references, even back then, were mostly avoided. And the true meaning was taken to be, basically, a compassionate, generous, benevolent attitude toward all humanity. So think of uh, the classic Charles Dickens uh, story, A Christmas Carol. The advertising blurb on that book reads, quote, a miser learns the true meaning of Christmas when three ghostly visitors review his past and foretell his future. And I'd say that's, that's basically the way that we use the phrase today. It, it's probably a combination of the lessons learned by Ebenezer Scrooge and in opposition to the rampant commercialization of Christmas. So, crass materialism, massive credit card debt, disgusting gluttony, conspicuous consumption. No, that's not the true meaning of Christmas. It's about love and kindness and family and generosity and selflessness and benevolence and charity and helping those less fortunate. It's about giving drivers waiting to pull into the flow of downtown Toronto traffic a break. Go ahead, buddy. It's Christmas. And those are attitudes that everyone can get behind, right? I mean, regardless of our religious beliefs. So let me ask again. What is the true meaning of the Christmas season? And as I put that question to us in a Bible-believing church, a Christian church where Jesus Christ is worshipped as Lord, and after having just sung carols, praising God for the gift of his Son, we're perhaps expecting the answer to be Jesus, right? Jesus. He is the reason for the season. Well, yes and no. Christmas, the holiday, the season, the day, December 25th. Christmas is not a biblically prescribed observance for faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's cultural. It's traditional. We have no idea when Jesus of Nazareth was born. So in one sense, what's the true meaning of the season is a question the Bible doesn't answer because they're, properly speaking, there is no season. However, the question related to this season the Bible does ask and answers is a matter of great, great significance. Without exaggeration, It's a matter of eternal significance, friends. A question for all peoples, for all times, for all seasons. Who is this child, Jesus? Why was he born? What's the meaning of his birth? The angel of the Lord, speaking to Joseph about his fiancée, Mary, says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And this is what Matthew sets out to prove to his readers over the course of the 28 chapters of his book. But it begins here. In our passage today, in Matthew chapter 1, humanity 
is on the cusp of a new era. Now the time has come. God has begun to fulfill his promises of salvation to the world in Jesus, his Messiah, his Christ, his anointed one, the son of David. All those Old Testament titles refer to the same figure, the long-anticipated king of Israel. If you look at verse 1 of our text, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 16, Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. In Matthew chapter 1, God has begun to fulfill his salvation promises, promises he made way back in the Old Testament, the parts of our Bible that cover the centuries of history before Jesus' birth. Promises linked to the one overarching story of the Bible, God's plan, his plan to rescue sinners from the penalty of our sin and our rebellion against him through the death and resurrection of the King of Israel, Jesus, the Messiah. That is the storyline of the entire Bible in a nutshell. God's plan to rescue sinners from the penalty of our sin and our rebellion against him through the death and resurrection of King Jesus, the Messiah. So obviously, one of the most important events in this good promise coming to pass is the actual birth of Jesus. And so, verse 18, we're going to start here, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And notice that Matthew's birth narrative doesn't begin once upon a time. Jesus' birth is not located in myth. It's located in human history. Matthew's just taken us through 15 verses of genealogy establishing Joseph's royal pedigree. He is a direct descendant of King David. That's as historical as it gets. So, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, which refers to sexual intercourse, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, in this culture in which we're reading, the pledge to be married was actually legally binding. I mean, in our culture, it's not until you actually come to the altar and say, I do, then you're legally bound. Engagements, right? There's no no guarantees. In this culture, only a writ of divorce could break it. And infidelity at this stage of the relationship was considered to be adultery. Notice Joseph is already called Mary's husband in verse 19. Though by our cultural standards, they'd only be engaged, their fiancés. The marriage itself took place when the groom took the bride into his home. And to clarify, when the text reads that Mary was found to be pregnant in verse 18, it doesn't mean that she was trying to conceal it, only that her pregnancy became obvious, a pregnancy which came about through the Holy Spirit. Now, how that happened, I have no idea. No one does. I mean, the biological mechanics of this, right? This is one of the deep, deep mysteries of the faith. What we do know is that the power of the Lord manifest in the person of God, the Holy Spirit, miraculously brought about the conception of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Let's look for a moment at the parallel passage to this in the Gospel of Luke. If, you're, if you have our church Bible, it's on page 1025, but Luke chapter 126. I'll just read it for us. This will help, I think, clarify some things. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and you'll recall Elizabeth is John the Baptist's mother, Jesus' cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. So there's our king theme yet again. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The thing is, Joseph doesn't have the advantage that we do of being able to read Luke chapter 1. The woman he's betrothed to is pregnant and not by him. So he's in a terrible quandary. Turn back to Matthew now, verse 19. We'll pick it up again. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. That's what the Greek text says. He was a righteous man. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. And he had a mind to divorce her quietly. Because he was a righteous man, Joseph could not in good conscience marry a woman who is now thought to be unfaithful. He couldn't bear the thought of going through the marriage as if he had been involved in the illicit premarital sex that everyone would assume was the cause of Mary's pregnancy. Such a marriage, such a marriage would have been a tacit admission to his own guilt. But because he's unwilling to expose Mary to the disgrace of a public divorce, Joseph chooses a quieter way a way that is permitted by the law of Moses, which allowed for private divorces between two witnesses. So this would leave both his righteousness, which in this context means his conformity to the law of Moses, and his compassion for Mary intact. So this is what he decides to do. But at this point, he's going to divorce her quietly, all right? But at this point, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and changes his mind. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. So do you see that the angel is preparing Joseph for the message to come? Joseph himself is a direct heir. He is a descendant of Israel's great king, David of Bethlehem. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel of the Lord is basically telling Joseph, don't worry, Joseph, you're not a cuckold. Mary's been faithful to you. She's become pregnant through God's Holy Spirit. Now, it would be wise to stop here and consider 
Um, friends, what should we be taking away from the virginal conception? Beyond the mere fact of it, what should we be thinking about this non-negotiable piece of Christian doctrine? What should we be telling our loved ones about this over the Christmas holidays? What, what, what purpose does this serve? Before anything else, it's this. Mary's virginal conception is the means whereby God becomes a man. The virgin conception is the Bible's answer that naturally arises when we tell someone that Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. How did this occur? And so we say, by means of Mary's virginal conception, God the Son, without ceasing to be what he is, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son and Word of God, by means of Mary's virginal conception, he took into union with his divine nature in the one divine person of the Son, our human nature. And so came to be God with us. The long-prophesied Emmanuel. And all this took place to fulfill Old Testament scripture. God being born to a virgin. God taking on human nature and living among his peoples. This was an event God clearly prophesied centuries, centuries before it happened. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 7:14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, no greater blessing can be conceived than God dwelling with his people. It evokes the great words of John 1.14, and the word, the eternal word, became flesh. And dwelt among us. And it looks forward to the blessings of the new heavens and new earth as well. It's not that God assumed the likeness of a man or possessed a human body like an avatar puppet. But God became a man. And made his dwelling among us. God fully dawned our humanity except for our sin. Not within the realm of ancient superstitious myth, but in history. Do you believe that? Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. And so the virgin conceived Emmanuel is born. And eight days later, we read about this in Luke's account, eight days later, when the time came for him to be circumcised at the temple in Jerusalem, Joseph named him Jesus. And now we come to the very heart of the Christmas story. It's just one verse, and it's our concluding point. 
Go back with me for a moment to verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And if you, in your Bibles, you might have a footnote there. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So there you have it, friends. This is the good news that Christians want to be trumpeting to the skies, and not just during the Christmas holidays, but every day of the year. Perhaps this Christmas season, the Lord will give us a window of opportunity to talk about the incarnation of God the Son with our mother or our brother, or our grandfather, perhaps as we're washing dishes after the big meal, or watching a football game on television. No matter how we get our foot in the door, however the conversation uh, turns around to Jesus Christ, we must do all that we can to purposefully take the conversation to this point, to this fact, to this good news. He will save his people from their sins. That's it. Be certain your loved ones know it's this aspect of Jesus' birth that fills you with surpassing joy, Christian. Our flyer for our Christmas service this year, is, it says, God with us to save us. It's, it's good just to consider for a moment, just to marvel at both parts of that sentence. God with us, Emmanuel to save us, to save us from our sins. I, I love our Christmas service, and I think that the folks have done such a great job of decorating. It looks so festive. We've got a Christmas tree over here. It's just, it's just nice. It's just nice to be able to come to church on this day and be able to sing these carols. There's something massive, though, behind all this pageantry. In the first century, there were all sorts of Jewish expectations concerning the Messiah, he was thought to be a political, militaristic king, one who would redeem Israel from, Romans, uh, from Roman tyranny, and also that he would uh, even purify his people through a renewed appeal to the law of Moses. But there was, there was no expectation that the Messiah would give his own life as a ransom on a Roman cross to save his people from the penalty of their sins. No one was anticipating that. Verse 21 of Matthew 1 orients us to the fundamental purpose of Jesus' coming and the essential nature of the reign that he inaugurates as King Messiah and heir of David's throne. Hear me, everyone. Jesus is a savior. Jesus was born to die, to save guilty sinners from eternal condemnation. We've been singing about these very things. Who did Jesus come to save? His people, Jews and Gentiles, everyone who would ever believe in him. How did he save them? By leaving the glories of heaven, becoming a man, and dying in our place on the cross. Jesus' death was a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice. His death is the death that we deserve it's as we read in Isaiah 53. This was prophesied centuries before Christ's birth or his death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace 
was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, when we, when we read of the baby in the manger, we mustn't get lost in the pageantry and in the holiday sentiment. Without exaggeration, for the sake of our eternal souls, we must look ahead to the 33-year-old God-man hanging on that wretched cross. When we sing of the adoration of angels and shepherds, we must turn our minds to the taunts and the jeers of the crowd as Jesus hung naked on that instrument of torture and shame, hanging there, dying there for sinners like you and me. When you think of the stable he was born in, think also of the tomb in which he was to lie. When you think of gold and frankincense and myrrh, think too of the nails and the mock royal crown of thorns and the spittle of the religious leaders dribbling through our Lord's beard. Don't get stuck in Bethlehem this holiday season without giving prayerful thought to Golgotha, the hill on which our Lord was crucified. There is a trajectory of God's amazing, saving grace running from the manger to the cross. Never, never forget that trajectory, lest it render what we customarily celebrate this season, the birth of Emmanuel, God with us, into something devoid of meaning, something insipid, something merely sentimental. We're all sinners. Every single one of us, we all stand condemned before God's judgment throne. But there is good news. It says the angel announced to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And with this, I'll close. I'll just quote these angels. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, God with us to save us. Amen. Our final carol this morning is, is my favorite. I think, honestly, even if it's not a carol, it's, it's up there in the top ten of Christian songs ever written, in my opinion. It's, it's full of rich doctrine. Uh, I mean, it's just, I'll focus on the verse I think is most commonly known, but it's also so easy to gloss over what is being said here. The third verse, mild he lays his glory by, that's the Son of God, laying the glory he had as the Son, laying it aside, born that man no more may die. Perfect summary for Christmas. Born to raise the sons of earth, that's us. That's his resurrection. That's what it achieves for us. Born to give us second birth. Let's sing.
Well, even as we have spent this morning celebrating the first advent of our Lord, we know there is yet a second advent, a second appearing of the Son of God that is still to come. The book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, prepares us for this day. The Apostle John is given a vision of this day. He sees a new heaven and a new earth, a place where no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and they will reign forever and ever. New City, that's the day we are looking forward to if we are indeed trusting in the finished work of Christ. His everlasting kingdom was inaugurated at the cross. It is contested now, but one day all the promises of God will be consummated in his second coming. Our job as the church now is to prefigure this reality, to be heaven's embassy in a world that is passing away. We won't do this perfectly. We don't do this perfectly. But this plan is not reliant upon our perfection. God's Spirit will uphold a faithful remnant of his people from every nation until that last day. If you are interested in learning more about what you heard today or have any questions about Jesus or the Bible, please ask someone. Maybe ask the person who invited you. Uh, They would love to go to God's Word to try and answer it for you. If you want to talk to Pastor John or myself, we'd love to speak with you as well. Come up to us after the service. There are also some Bibles on the back table this morning. Some of you may have picked them up on your way in. Um, If you already have one, you can return them back there. Uh, But if you don't have one, we would encourage you to take that home with you. That's free if you'd like one today. We love the local church. Uh, Honestly, it's a real joy to be in committed fellowship uh, with other sinners saved by God's grace. Um, Please talk to John or I if you have questions about why we believe so strongly about the centrality of the local church in God's plan. There are also a couple little books on that back table. There's two or three copies of them. One's titled, Why Should I Join a Church? And What Should I Do Now That I'm a Christian? Uh, Those are also free. If you're interested, you can take one of those with you. Our benediction today is the closing words of the Bible. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.